0: Now, today's EURACTIVE event is supported by the European University Association. You can follow along online, of course, using the hashtag EADebates. I mean, part of the aim of today's discussion is really to spread the word about science and research and innovation and how important it is to the wider public. So, without the recent decades' innovation, we wouldn't even be able to have today's event. So, please do use all the tools at your disposal to spread the word. And, of course, you can ask questions of our esteemed panellists using the Ask button mm mm-hmm. Now, the EU's population has never been better educated, but we do also have some ambitious new targets for 2020 to have around 40% of the young population with a higher education qualification. And we've seen that over the last year, COVID-19 has been a sort of stress test for our society. And the role of research, innovation and experts in helping us overcome this horrible pandemic has been brought to the fore. But at the same time, we have seen in parallel an infinite and a doubting of vaccines and so on. So we're going to talk about all of these very big issues. So make sure you get involved by asking questions. I am starting the Q&A now so you can put them in. But first, we are going to turn to our panellists. I am going to start with Despina Spanao. Thank you very much, Despina, for joining us. Head of Cabinet for European Commission Vice President Margarita Schinas. We also have Anna papna Opolu, who is Acting Director of the Research and Innovation Outreach in DGRTD at the European Commission. Arasala is the Head of EU Affairs at Facebook. Andrea Arenda, Senior Research Fellow and Head of Global Governance and Regulation, Innovation and the Digital Economy at CEPS. And last but not least, Michael Murphy, President of the European University Association. Um, Do we have Despina there? Can we hear and see you? Oh, we also have joining us Eva Kiley, MEP and ITRA committee member from the European Parliament. Very good morning to you, Eva. I can see you getting set up. Can you see and hear us? Yes. Can we hear you? I can
1: see and hear you, but I have to change my iPad uh, direction, so (laughs) give me two minutes.
0: We will give you a couple of minutes. In that time, I will remind you that what we want to do and what we want to talk about today is how to bridge the gap between science and policy, how it's essential, ensuring good policy making that is evidence based. I know that's something that the Commission has indeed been working on as well. So perhaps Despina, would you be available to start now? Oh, I think we've lost you. Um, all this wonderful technology and innovation that I'm lauding so much has just failed us. Eva, are you ready to give us your opening thoughts?
1: Well, I, I think uh, actually I managed to turn my my iPad upside down, so <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot talk to you. These things happen, but I can so, see uh, you
0: very clearly and hear you.
1: Yes. So um, first of all, thank you so much for hosting this event. I think it's really timely, and um, um, and also thank you because I'm uh, surrounded by excellent panelists, and you managed to have an event that is not for women, but have more women actually than men. So congratulations for that too. Um, and your active has always been um, discussing about very timely um, issues, and um, I think that at this point, having policymakers. Um, understanding what's happening with this pandemic and how we can protect democracy uh, with knowledge and science. It's really, uh, really important. Uh, We have been dealing with this uh, question several years now. So we have been trying to connect with uh, um, scientists and we have been bringing them together uh, close to politicians to understand how they are thinking how they are developing their research so i think it's really important to um to to do this and even more now that in order to fight this pandemic and and the prism of our thought has has actually changed a lot uh, is to understand the scientific data to base every decision we make on science so i think it's really important to um to underline that um, we have been working in the European Parliament uh, with the Science and Media Hub. So we have been trying to find and discuss with scientists on all the different aspects that they have faced for this pandemic to to, to make sure that we will provide citizens with um, scientifically based data in order for them to make decisions on what to believe. So my response actually to this question would be to make sure that citizens have options they can see how we make decisions they can see the different perspectives we have because even science you wouldn't see all the scientists agreeing with each other Um, so what we have to do is to make sure that they will have access to to our data to different points of view and then they will uh, decide how they can proceed. So um, we have, of course to, to combine also the evidence we have with the understanding of uh, the society and the, and the economy, and we cannot just you know base policy making only to science. so we have to have different also understandings. Um, you mentioned now the the pandemic and how things have uh, developed there. Um, I have to say that even even now, we are not sure exactly um, if we can respond to all the questions that there are out there. It's it's more of a, we're in a survival mode and we deal with many uncertainties. So everybody's turning to science to be able to understand and predict um, the different scenarios in order to to decide how we're going to move. We saw that, we have a problem with a contact tracing application that could actually be a solution, but at the same time they would evade completely our privacy so um i I think that in Europe we don't have the same feeling we do have um, a huge like a, a great sensitivity on on privacy matters. We have seen that and uh, uh, if you make you know polls uh, in, in Europe, you will see that citizens care a lot about their privacy. Um, so we have tried to have applications that they use technology, they do, that they don't hold um, data. At the same time, we are not all democracies. So we have countries that they have taken advantage of the pandemic to control citizens. And this is what we have to avoid. So we are understanding how challenging it could be. And um, we try to avoid having this scenario taking place in um, in Europe or in any democratic country. So to do that, we are trying to set uh, the same standards. This is the year that we are working on the data um, files, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, um, the data governance. And, and we are trying to make sure that even our metadata, they have a protection in order to um, avoid any breach of privacy. Um, so one thing that I would like to mention is that uh, it has started a few uh, weeks ago, an initiative of trying to make sure that we will not even have advertisement that would like personally target um, everyone. Why would it that? So the manipulation of the perception of someone that doesn't understand, that does not understand um, how things work online uh, we believe that has even altered uh, um, results of elections and this could of course harm our democracy and there is no way to take it back so to avoid having that um, because you can use evidence not just to protect democracy but also you can use data to attack democracy to manipulate perceptions and this is something uh, we need to make sure we are um, Protected from. So I would say that the the architecture that we're going to choose even on the algorithms that are being used, is really essential to have like privacy uh, by design. Microtargeting should be very carefully um, applied, and we have to make sure there will be safeguards there. And in the end, I have to say that um, we are really working uh, in my committee, To do studies and provide with all these different aspects to our uh, politicians, to my colleagues, in order for them to make decisions. The same has to happen with citizens. They have to have options. Even science cannot direct them or force them to do one thing or the other. We have to allow them to to have enough data for them to make the right choices. I think my time is over because (laughs) I see how you look at me. <laughs> yes, Jennifer, thank you so much. I am
0: nodding at you because you've, you've, you've hit all the main points and I want to come back to them, but I can't keep track of them all if you keep going because I, you're making some really strong points. And I thank want to give Despina a chance to talk about because you touched on the, the issue of, of non democratic countries. And Despina, you're from the cabinet of Margarita Schinas and, of course, the European way of life, which is something that we want science and research and education to feed into. So tell us a little bit about that from, from your uh, perspective.
2: Thank you very much. Good morning. I hope you can hear me because I had a challenge with the sound.
0: We were challenging morning, <laughs> but we can indeed hear you.
2: It's a pleasure to see you. it's particular pleasure to see Eva. Uh, and, and to work with her again and all the, the excellent co-speakers. Um, you've picked up a very interesting uh, angle uh, to talk about the subject. I think no no time ever before has evidence and science been more relevant than in COVID times? No matter what we do to manage the pandemic, it's based on evidence, epidemiology, science. Developing vaccines depends on science. Managing the pandemic depends on evidence. So I think we are living a time where evidence and science and people uh, who are engaged in research become the most relevant. I will speak to you from my experience, because in the European way of life portfolio, Vice President Skinas has a, an amazing combination of uh, issues to handle, ranging from migration and security, but reaching also education, culture, uh, uh, sports, skills, and then health. And bringing all that together, uh, you definitely need evidence on where the gaps are, for instance. You definitely need science. If you're going to take the right decisions. So, when we were managing the pandemic, we saw how there is a gap where science is um, also considered only in one direction and in one field. What do I mean by that? When the pandemic hit, we all looked up uh, in um, our books for the best epidemiologists because we wanted to be aware of what the situation is. But we will not be able to manage the pandemic simply on the basis of epidemiology. The obvious next field is economics, because our economy is suffering severely. Uh, The uh, employment is expected to suffer. Uh, Skills are not being developed the same way that they were because schools, universities, education institutions, research institutions are closed or challenged by the new methods of work. But we also need other sciences. We need sociology more than ever. The impact of the pandemic and the measures that we take have a significant outreach in our society. And they have a great impact on our people's health, mental health, and well-being. So I think we need something more now from science. We need scientists of different fields to come together. Because scientists, when they look for excellence, they always look for it in their field. I think where we need more science and more evidence to come together is how do we deal with all the facets of the pandemic. And it's not just the pandemic. I think this is true for everything uh, around us. So uh, let's take the pandemic as an example, learn from it. And I think where we need more collaboration in science is bringing different fields together and uh, managing our solutions in a multifaceted way, the same way the problem is multifaceted. What uh, Eva mentioned uh, in, in her speech is extremely relevant, data. But data are read in different ways. There are epidemiology data that are read from a health point of view. There's economic data that is read from an economic and employment point of view. And there is, of course, all the issues of the data linked to our values that we should not So again, there, we need uh, to have sufficient data, sufficient evidence, but for this to be managed by a group of scientists that represent multiple fields. So for me, this is the biggest science uh, challenge. Uh, This is where universities can make a very big difference because they are hubs of different fields. They bring together scientists from every field. And I think this is where they can play a significant role.
0: Thank you very much, Despina. Um, we're going to turn now to our, our, our third Greek lady of the morning. We're not only representing women today, we're re- strongly representing Greece as well. Anna, um, Anna, Despina there mentioned bringing together different sort of silos of education. We're bringing together two different departments of the European Commission. So give us your uh, opening thoughts and perspectives showing that we're, we're kind of trying to take a, a 360 view on this.
3: previous
4: uh, speakers. Um, I think uh, Jennifer, uh, Eva, and
5: uh, Despina put very well the scene setter. So in in the period of COVID, we all think about science and innovation in order to overcome the challenges we face, both in terms of scientific evidence and innovative solutions. And we all know that the European Commission put in place one of the biggest research and innovation programs aiming to deliver scientific results and innovation that create impact for Europe, but also inform our policy making. We have the joint research centres, which is a fantastic job in this uh, context, but also we make extensive use of best scientific uh, experts outside the Commission in order to provide advice for to inform policy making in complex issues. One of those was, and it's going to be how to improve pandemic uh, preparedness and management. But the success of this work that you are doing, it's not not going to happen if the social trust in research results is missing. And this, we sometimes we take it for granted, and it's not there. So one principal objective for the European Research and Innovation Policy is to open up to the, the research of the society. And vice versa, to establish trust between the two facilitate uptake of innovation, and achieve a greater impact. To establish this trust, we need researchers with high integrity standards. Research conducted openly, responsibly, and transparently. This is very important, because otherwise the citizens, they will not trust us. And we need to involve the society in the agenda setting and in doing of research, increasing scientific literacy in society. These are important aspects that we have to look at. And Desmina spoke about sociologists. Socio- socioeconomic research is an important aspect that we have to look at. We did a lot in the past. We have to do even more in the future. The societal engagement in research and innovation has been promoted and embedded and continue to be the case in the new European research area policy that we have just established, but also in the activities of Horizon 320 and the upcoming Horizon Europe Europe program. So, It's even more now that we need scientific knowledge and understanding in society. And the commission, of course, can walk the talk through its funding programs and policies. The task of opening research to society, though, requires other stakeholders, universities, research and innovation institutions, and territorial actors to become protagonists leading this transformation. And this is what we believe, that universities could play a crucial role in fostering interest in science and training young scientists and innovators. And this is what we are doing now. We are working very closely with our colleagues from TGAARCA in order to develop a new vision for the universities in the future, where the universities need to be more interconnected, innovative, facilitate even more cooperation with partners and society and their innovation ecosystems, be inclusive and digital, but this is the way also that we are going to move ahead towards the green and sustainable development. So a lot of challenges in front of us. We need the society, we have to work with the society. The research and innovation, the science evidence is there. We can do more, but we have to do it together and for the society.
0: Thank you very much, Anna. Um, well, we're talking about information science, and let's be honest, a lot of people nowadays get their information from social media. So Arasala, Head of EU Policy at Facebook, um, talk to me about the role of Facebook in disseminating information and the challenges that we've seen over the last year. Um, it's, it's been a particularly tricky year for social media.
4: Well, I think every year it can be challenging. Uh, <laughs> but. Let me start by saying something very timely. At Facebook, we strike the balance between freedom of expression and the integrity of the platform by finding new ways to connect people to accurate and uh, authoritative uh, content. We do this in several ways, so let me let me give you a few examples. We work with fact-checkers and we flag content that is false and we create hubs for authoritative content such as the COVID Information Center. We reduce the distribution of misinformation that does not violate our community standards but undermines the authenticity and integrity of our platform and we remove the content that does violate our community standards. We believe that it is the most impactful way forward. If we simply removed all posts flagged by fact-checkers as false, the content would still be available elsewhere on internet, other platforms or around our dinner tables. By leaving this content up and uh, surfacing research from fact-checkers or pointing people to reliable information, we are providing people with important information and context and therefore building their critical thinking. And this leads me to my second point. Beyond content moderation work, work, digital citizenship and media literacy are a huge part of the fight against misinformation and also disinformation. We need to equip people with the skills they need to participate constructively uh, in online conversations. For example, in January we ran a media literacy campaign ahead of uh, Catalan regional elections to help users learn how to spot false news online. This is part of our ongoing efforts to raise awareness and help people be more critical about the information they see. We also launched this uh, Get a Digital program to provide lessons and resources designed, by the way, both for classrooms and at home, uh, to young people on how to stay safe online, navigate content and evaluate its trustworthiness. The aim is to build positive and inclusive communities online and uh, develop healthy habits. Finally, stepping back back for a second, we as a company together with experts and universities can do much more than help provide and promote authoritative content online. We can also be part of evidence-based policy making exercise, like addressed here uh, by many speakers also. We are running both Policies sandboxes and policy prototyping programs, as part of our Open Loop platform. Some of you may, might be might be familiar with. Precisely because we believe that policymaking can be can benefit from the type of factual insights that academic research and experts generate. We have a program called Data for Good to which we share some of our data sets uh, in a privacy-preserving way uh, to advance social issues such as responding to global pandemics like COVID-19, planning vaccination campaigns or addressing climate change. We know that data sets can improve how nonprofits profits do their work, how researchers learn and how public policies are developed. We work with uh, over... 450 partners in nearly 70 countries, which include universities and non-profit organizations in the areas of disaster response, health, climate change, um, and economics. In 2020, our publicly available datasets were downloaded downloaded over a million of times. I'm happy to go more in details, but uh, let me stop here and looking forward to our conversation.
0: Thank you. I'm going to come back to some of those points you raised, um, obviously, uh, as we go on through our discussion. But Andrea, let me turn to you. Uh, We've been uh, talking around these issues here in Brussels for quite some time. But give us your opening thoughts. Uh, You've heard a lot of the speakers have already touched on some of the key points.
3: Thank you very much, Jennifer, and greetings to all my co-panelists. I interact with them uh, quite often. with uh, obviously university in generally because i'm a university professor currently at the school of transnational governance a european university institute with eva and the stoa panel as i sit in the stoa international advisory board um, uh, and in particular advising on artificial intelligence and with anna because i sit in the esir advisory group uh, that advises dg research uh, on the uh, economic and societal impacts of research I would like to reflect a little bit on on the notion of evidence-based policy making because I've been uh, quite active uh, over the past 15 years in trying to promote policy making based on evidence uh, in Brussels and in member states. Um, I've been materially contributing to the better regulation guidelines of the European Commission, writing about better regulation, performing and carrying out ex-ante impact assessments and exposed evaluations. All this, as uh, in my opinion, can be described as a success story at the EU level, uh, meaning that today we have a lot more um, uh, evidence-based policy-making in Brussels. Not the same can be said entirely about the member states. Uh, and at the same time, we have a challenge, because when we say evidence-based policy-making, we largely say about performing cost-benefit analysis of uh, new proposals or going back and seeing what the efficiency uh, and effectiveness of previous proposals or existing uh, pieces of legislation uh, um, are. And I think this is not uh, uh, everything that we, uh, that we have to do to ensure that there is evidence-based policymaking. Uh, what I want to say here is that evidence-based policymaking doesn't mean bottom-up policymaking. Uh, if we apply criteria to policymaking uh, based on which uh, the sum of what people want today is what we call a benefit in policy, we will not be able to incorporate in our policies uh, things like resilience or sustainability, medium to longer term impacts. And I think this is a shift that is about to happen also in the European Commission. We are waiting for a communication on a betteration and the sustainable development goals. The pandemic has increased the emphasis on uh, things like resilience. But here is a key point because uh, in my opinion, the university world that I, a wholeheartedly embrace and support has not been able in particular in Europe to support evidence-based policymaking at the beginning and also uh, the shift towards more goal-based policymaking later on. Uh, here is the first thing that I that I think uh, we should reflect on. Can universities get there, and particularly in Europe? Can we uh, promote more interdisciplinary thinking and applied research uh, alongside fundamental research in universities so that we can fully support meaningful policy making second series of thoughts uh, that very quickly that i want to bring in um, is um, um related to uh, two things that we've seen happening uh and accelerating uh, over the past uh, year uh the pandemic obviously and the digital um transformation uh, well the pandemic i leave it there as a statement just to provoke my uh, co-panelists when the pandemic emerged all this scientific advice mechanisms that were available at EU level failed to support initial thinking and strategic uh, um, actions. Um, The European Policy Strategy Center that existed under the um, uh, Juncker Commission uh, had not been transformed into what today is idea, but also we should discuss whether that is a sufficient uh, uh, support mechanism. The scientific advice mechanism in DG research, even the JRC to a large extent, despite the fact that they had worked on resilience before, all of this were insufficiently supporting policymaking. So we need to reflect on that. What are What is the governance of scientific advice that we have uh, in Brussels? When it comes to digital, and I'll finish with that, Digital is increasing, creating a problem of uh, privately funded research and our ability to distinguish what is real from what is a description of reality. Ceci pas un pip, if you wish. You know, going back to to Madrid, uh, if we receive from our digital means information and we are not able to trust that data flow, uh, that is going to be a problem. Uh, the university world and scientific advice have to help us going through this. And I think evidence-based policymaking will not be sufficient in that respect. Uh, STOA, to some extent, is doing this. We need foresight-based policymaking, and we need interdisciplinary thinking to back our vision of society for the medium to long term, uh, which has to be incorporated in the way in which we design and implement public policies from now on. Thanks, Jennifer. Over to you.
0: Thank you very much, Andrea, and we will come back to those questions. I'm glad you raised them because we, we like to be a little bit provocative here. But uh, I'm going to turn now to Michael Murphy, President of the European University Association. <laughs> Michael, there's been a lot of content already before we've heard from you, so you please reflect on that as well as giving us your thoughts.
6: <laughs> Thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, as I was listening to the conversation, I was reminded that um, in the end, society is always challenged um, and universities have been around for a thousand years trying to support society, address them. So there's no change there. But the real challenge for us always is to make sure that we are positioned to deal with the future, not just the immediate, but the, um, the, the, the long term as well. And uh, I'm here really this morning to, to assure you that the universities in Europe are doing their bit to position themselves to support society. The crises are many. There's been a list of them. Uh, But we've had a good year, in one sense, in that, uh, looking at this morning's topic, uh, um, information, misinformation, and science, the performance in the past year has been remarkable, and um, the belief that um, that the public have in uh, science and in universities has grown. Uh, One statistic I remind people is that uh, in 1919, uh, influenza killed nearly 100 million people. COVID is has the same virulence but the mortality rate will be about uh, one percent of what it was back then taking population growth into account because of uh, of science and the application of science but uh positioning us for the future um we have just published our ideas on how we must respond to all the issues that uh, you have raised already this morning um, and our concept is that we have to adapt how universities function and the uh, role that universities play in society. And we have uh, redesigned our our concept of the university um, under the term universities uh, without walls. That, that in fact is the nature of our institutions that will be necessary in the coming years. Many facets. Uh, Without walls will have many meanings. Uh, On the one hand, we see a much larger proportion of the population uh, engaged in learning, lifelong learning in particular. Uh, We see more diversity in that we should be uh, attracting more of our disadvantaged, uh, disabled and migrant cohorts. And we should have our alumni as members of the University for Life constantly engaged with us. Uh, We also see uh, a necessary change in the structure of our institutions, which we see as being hybrid into the future, learning a lot from the past year, never never wasting a crisis. So that means uh, a lot of virtual learning uh, intermingled with physical campus-based traditional uh, learning. Uh, Without walls, again, in the sense of much more mobility, the students and the staff moving between institutions and even between countries um, and we see mobility between much more mobility between the campus and uh, the learning environment and the workplace uh, for example uh, industry experts coming in to teach and our staff going out to uh, reskill in the work environment uh, into the future we also see some changes in how we manage the learning experience. Uh, It has to be much more flexible, uh, more learner-centered, students as co-creators of knowledge, and we see lifetime accumulation of learning uh, being the norm with uh, micro-credentials. And in content, and some have alluded to this already, imbuing our learners with a much better sense of scientific literacy, uh, a value system that will support our democratic society. This is a major topic for this morning and of course everybody committed to the sustainability agenda. Uh, we have to bear in mind that uh, our learners must be robot proofed uh, how they have to live with artificial intelligence uh, and we'll have to uh, compete with it. Uh, what we do in research must be uh, advanced in interdisciplinarity that's been mentioned by several this morning. Uh, open publishing of data Uh, open access to our research data, so that people will have a a greater trust, a greater confidence in the integrity of what we do, and a better understanding of it. Uh, Again, without walls, um, much more engagement with public, uh, in uh, governance of our institutions, and much more engagement in regional innovation. But last message, we have to maintain diversity in Europe, Uh, Darwin was right, there is more safety and diversity, and we see uh, our institutions uh, changing their course in different ways in different parts of Europe, also ensuring that excellence is distributed across Europe, uh, avoiding the uh, model seen in other parts of the world of small numbers of elite, highly ranked, spuriously highly ranked institutions, Europe is going to go a different route. So, in, in essence, in these few minutes, all I can say is that we're on a journey to a significant change. It will require a lot of collaboration with society, much work to be done, though many are well on the path already. But our objective is to make sure that we are fit for purpose to deal with crises that will always exist. That's the opening message, Jennifer, and I'm sure we will pick up some further points.
0: Absolutely, Michael. I'm going to, first of all, start with a, with a question that I know will come up, and, and Andrea's already alluded to it, to sort of set it aside in a way. I want to talk to you a little bit about university partnerships with private companies and the funding of those sorts of programmes. Uh, we will come to Facebook, indeed. Uh, it funds a programme at uh, University College London called FAIR. It's researching AI. DeepMind funds programmes. It's owned by Alphabet. Google itself funds various uh, institutes for journalism. How can we be sure that this money doesn't come with strings attached? Or, or are there, you know, nefarious motives behind these companies getting, getting into the, the universities?
6: Uh, I guess, Jennifer, the first thing to say is that collaboration with the business world is critical to uh, our success in supporting society. Just look at the past year, the development of diagnostic tests and vaccines arose from a a really deep collaboration between universities and the pharmaceutical sector, for example. But you raise the key point that uh, within the university sector, we have to have governance processes and a value system that will adjudicate in each case, the benefits and the risks associated with that collaboration. Because fundamental to sustaining the credibility of universities, is the, uh, the reality and the perception that we are uh, independent, that we uh, have an autonomy and that we have the freedom to be objective. So the contracts have to be tested and um, very carefully to ensure that risk is managed in the collaboration. But under no circumstances can universities run away from uh, uh, collaboration with an incredibly important part of society.
0: Thank you, Michael. Aura, uh, you give us your, I mean you're, you're the other side of this collaboration, as it were. Um, how do you reassure people who may be concerned that uh, a, a company like Facebook getting involved in education and while at the same time paying uh, paying these students as staff members will allow them the significant independence of thought we expect from uh, third level learning?
4: Let me first and foremost be very clear there, like whenever we actually finance something or uh, cooperate or collaborate uh, with any universities or researchers, it's always open information. So it's very important for us that people know where we have partnerships. So in that way, we are very transparent. But if I'm looking at this from the Europe's economic perspective, uh, for example, we are Yes, uh, in a health emergency, however, this is also economic um, emergency soon. So we need a lot of collaboration between companies, between universities, between universities of applied sciences. Uh, and here, I think it's crucial that we do cooperation with universities and researchers. We actually um, have 25 million companies using our platforms only in the EU. And we understand how crucial it is that we have this cooperation, not only with companies, but also with independent researchers. And for us, for example, sharing data, having different programs like Data for Good, what I mentioned here, it's really crucial that they can actually base their research and then companies can use this data to actually scale up and grow in the EU and also support then economic growth, uh, growth uh, in this union.
0: Thank you. Um, Eva, let me ask you uh, again. um, I'm drawing again on on Andrea's questions here. He he has suggested that um, during the recent COVID crisis in the the first stages, that the policy wasn't supported by the research. Is that the case? Or was it simply that the crisis management didn't take enough notice of the research and science-based evidence? Well, actually, I would say that
1: if, if you check with ECDC, so the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, you would see that they had access to data, but but not data that we could, they, they followed common standards. So this made it impossible for us to make conclusions on what would be the best case scenario. I would say still is. Uh, we're still struggling and we have different approaches. You can see that each member state has a different strategy. Uh, even each region. So, um, I would say, yes, of course, in the beginning, it was uh, difficult to understand exactly uh, what uh, scientific data you should follow because of the different of st- difference of standards, because of uh, how we collected them, how we shared them, and um, how we could uh, actually get enough data to understand the pattern of this disease. Um, and that's why, as said, um, we were working uh, uh, very close uh, for many years, this is what we need to achieve also in, um, in our uh, work in the parliament and together with the commission to have legal certainty on how we can share this data and uh, make sure that we will provide scientists w- with enough tools for them to make these uh, conclusions um, uh, let me also say that um, i still believe that we need we need to make sure that citizens will understand that science has also different aspects different approaches um, because sometimes we believe artificial intelligence is the vaccine for this disease, it is not. It could definitely give us a, a clear understanding on how this disease could be treated. What are the um, the ways that we can address it the best, and uh, when we had the best results? Uh, but still, we have a lot of uh, of work to do. And for the time being, we're trying to collaborate at, at uh, as much as possible. And uh, just a final thing. Um, we did not mention a lot of virality. One of the problems we had was that something, some information um, that was that was uh, mentioned as scientific information based had become viral in the beginning and misled a lot of people, maybe even politicians or scientists. So the virality aspect is really crucial and we have to understand it and we have to find ways when um, it spreads fake news, Uh, to to make sure that it's going to be somehow uh, flagged, or as I said, we will provide the same time that somebody is looking at it to more options so that you can at least reconsider um, before making decisions. Because in the end, democracy is to have a choice, to have freedom of speech, to have access to information. And um, I think we have huge responsibility to, to achieve that. And this pandemic has been a catalyst.
0: Thank you. Despina, you heard there Eva saying that um, member states maybe react in different ways and even different regions. So how do we pull together for this uh, I mean, whole European approach? How do we differentiate Europe compared to, say, other parts of the world? Now, I know we, we saw the, the former president of the US suggesting that injecting bleach might be a good idea. I mean, how does Europe, when it is fragmented between different countries, counter that sort of information with science-based knowledge? Despina, oh, can you hear us? No, she can't hear us. No, no, I can, I can.
2: You can hear me as well. Yes, you can now, yes. Apparently, this is the most famous uh, expression of 2020. You're on mute, uh, apparently. So um, uh, thank you very much for giving me the floor. I fully agree with Eva. The, the, The example of the epidemiological information that was not forthcoming to, um, the european agency for disease control uh, is a good one but let me tell you also something that uh, europe has joined forces more than ever in the pandemic uh, there are things that people do not realize you know one of the first things that our president did when uh, the pandemic hit was to hire an epidemiologist uh, to advise her and then uh, she proposed to all the heads of state to connect their epidemiologists who hold regular calls and video conferences and exchange information. So, maybe, yes, information is not forthcoming from the national agencies that do not necessarily have the culture or the instinct to send to European agencies information that they consider um, sensitive, maybe, or of national interest. But when it comes to the epidemiological situation, embassies have been exchanging. The specialists have been exchanging. And if you look at all the European Council meetings of the last uh, six months, at least, I think since the summer, the culture really changed. Never before have we ever heard more collaboration between governments and uh, member states being prompted. Uh, it, It is quite an exceptional circumstance. So I think this is where Europe can play a role, putting together mechanisms where information is collected. Uh, that whether that is scientific or facts or or anything that that is linked to a crisis as we are facing now. Uh, We do have uh, researchers also connected through various programs that have channeled now their efforts to the production and research on the vaccine and the variants. The HERA incubator that we announced a few weeks ago will do exactly that. It will bring scientists that are already working on vaccine issues and COVID issues together so I think that uh, there is so much collaboration on evidence than ever before, and it goes beyond what meets the eye, uh, Jennifer.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn out, Anna, to a question from our audience, um, which is asking, is national bureaucracy able to digest the newest knowledge if most of them have no relevant education and practice? Um, it's a big question, and, and one I think that uh, you might be able to tackle.
5: Well um I hope I understand the question, but what I would like to say concerning national bureaucracy, this is an area that we we'll try also to address at European level by trying to, to be more agile, by trying to alleviate uh, um, uh, the any kind of uh, uh, um, obstacles that we have in the context of collaboration, in the context of dissemination of information. I like very much uh, the expression that Michael used about uh, universities without uh, walls. I think uh, I would like to use the same expression about dissemination of information, sharing knowledge without walls. And there we are collaborating very closely with all the national authorities. And here I would like to to raise a particular area that I think uh, that uh, in the European uh, Commission we try to to pave the way on sharing knowledge, sharing scientific knowledge and information. And in the work that we are doing in the context of sharing uh, scientific data, in uh, new initiatives that we have established last year, the European Open Science Cloud, where it is possible to put uh, in an interoperable, open way, data available for researchers, citizens, but also for industry, which is very important because then it will be possible to use those data uh, for uh, market uptake. And uh, I I would like to link this this work uh, to the activity that we have taken very urgently last year Uh, when the the uh, um, COVID-19 breakout uh, happened, where we try in less than a month's time to coordinate and collaborate with research organizations, uh, research institutions across Europe, and to put in place a COVID-19 data platform for scientific data that has been open to everybody in order to be able to share this information and to be used as soon as possible for all the research that was uh, taken on place uh, at that moment. And of course, we are continuing to populate this data more and more. Uh, I think it is important that uh, at European level, we take initiatives to reduce national uh, bureaucracy to align or to, to try to provide a uh, mechanism to align national administration also in the area of sharing knowledge, in the area of sharing data, but also in the area of collaboration between the different actors that they are important in the context of research and innovation uh, activity, on research and innovation uptake of the results to the market. And if I allow, Jennifer, I would like just to add one point. I think it's very important to continue to work with the industry very closely on the basis of the values. I fully agree on that. And I would like to highlight that in the recent developments of research and innovation policies, we are going to create a pact of values on how research and innovation should be conducted. It's something that we are co-creating together with all member states and stakeholders, and to, to be proposed at the end of the year it's an important initiative in particular nowadays that we want to push for more contact and more work with the industry but also more collaboration with this, with the society
0: Thank you. Michael, let me ask uh, you a little bit as well. I mean, uh, our question here is if, uh, if many of the people in bureaucracy have no relevant education or practice. I mean, let's expand that even to policymakers. <laughs> uh, in, in the EU, we, we know Ursula von der Leyen, Estella Kirakides, the, uh, the Health Commissioner, both are doctors. But would it help if we had policymakers, politicians, who were also actually qualified in other areas?
6: I guess... The right answer to that question is that we should be endeavoring to make sure that everybody should be sufficiently scientifically literate through our educational process. Um, Second point I would make is that we learned uh, in medicine many years ago the value of consensus statements by experts, and Despina alluded to that in a way when she uh, addressed the matter of bringing the national experts together to uh, agree uh, policy recommendations based on evidence. Uh, Third point I want to make is that uh, when examining the matter of gullibility, let's call it that, uh, and ways to combat it, Most reliable data indicates that education is the single most important intervention that can be made to uh, reduce gullibility in society. And we in the university sector are really focused at the moment on the steps that we can take to increase scientific literacy, uh, enhance the value system of the population, which includes politicians um, and everybody else. Uh, And that requires uh, a a culture change in the universities, Um, um, it requires curriculum change Um, but uh, we are on top of it if you want to read some more details in our vision statement.
0: Thank you. And I think uh, you've answered there actually another question that has come in from our audience as well, which was for yourself, Michael, or for Andrea. So I'm going to get Andrea to deal with it. It's uh, in what ways can education policies change to support media literacy? I think that is what you were touching on there with gullibility. Andrea, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, media literacy is a, is a very broad concept. If we want to relate it to um, disinformation and, and, and fake news and uh, trust in science, uh, it, it has uh, uh, more specific meanings. In my opinion, universities are, uh, um, so far have been insufficiently equipped to uh, increase awareness and media literacy because they have not fully, especially in Europe, uh, merged the field of data science which in the private sector tends to take a life of its own, in my opinion, that is an, an exaggeration, with the domain knowledge. Sometimes it's uh, the, uh, let's say, the, the, the training of um, uh, profiles that uh, in some parts uh, of academia are now called bilinguals. Um, researchers that have domain knowledge And at the same time have the possibility of using data uh, constructively and uh, smartly uh, to to find solutions to problems well universities i think have to invest more not in data science per se but in the combination of social sciences and uh, natural sciences and data science to make sure that uh, uh, their ability to help people interpret what is real and what is fake is increased. At the same time, universities can become more active players in society, as I think Michael was alluding to, um, uh, by uh, becoming the first, let's say, one-stop shop for citizens uh, that wants to understand Uh, how to decipher and to distinguish what is real from what is fake. And in this respect, universities can also provide more training and awareness raising and education, uh, not only to their students, but also, as Michael was saying, uh, as lifelong learning and also as training of the general public and raising their awareness on how to distinguish, for example, uh, fake news and how to avoid spreading fake fake news, knowing that this is something that has been, been easy until now, but it's going to become more and more complex the more we move into the age of deep fakes and the age of uh, enhanced use of artificial intelligence uh, uh, systems to really uh, tweak information uh, and to make it uh, uh, more, uh, let's say, close to uh, either private interests or to malicious types of interests.
0: Michael, you're nodding along there. Would you like to add something to that?
6: Yes. I. Um Uh, Andrea made uh, every point uh, I think I can agree with. Uh, He's certainly right about the universities being much more engaged with civic society Um, and we can do that at many levels. Our students should be uh, experiencing workplace and uh, civic society as part of their undergraduate learning processes Uh, addressing research questions that voluntary organisations may have, for example, um, and and learning citizenship skills. Our staff need to be trained to be better communicators, I probably would uh, benefit from that myself, Um, and we certainly need to upskill our staff in the use of social media in a way that uh, the younger generation now expects messaging to appear to them. Um we need, American presidential debates always take place on university campuses, but far more events should be taking place on university campuses to in order to influence society and uh, in employing the objective evidence that universities should be bringing to public debates. Uh, we should be much more active in uh, in media generally, so there's a whole spectrum of means by which uh, we can increase the capacity of society to understand information and to evaluate it.
0: Yes, public debates in universities when we can of course meet up again in person. Um, I I want to follow up that with a question um, from Elena and Andrea you also mentioned it. Um, How do you change the language of the scientific research to make it more accessible for the public? Andrea, I'll ask you first that, and then Aura, I'd like you to reflect on that as well.
3: Yeah, that is not necessarily uh, always easy. Um, uh, The more uh, scientific research becomes complex and technical, the more it is uh, difficult to, um, to communicate it to the general public in a meaningful way. And I think academics that are extremely familiar with the work that they are doing and academics that are open to interdisciplinarity based on experience are also the academics that are more able to speak different languages at different levels. Uh, Academics, um, Eva knows very well that uh, academics come to the European Parliament. I think STOA has invited Nobel Prizes uh, uh, for annual lectures. Some of them are much more able to communicate in uh, plain words, uh, the purpose and uh, uh, impact of their research—they don't necessarily have to go into the details. When I was teaching at Duke University uh, a, a few years ago, we uh, used to uh, involve civil society by um, organizing uh, a monthly meetings, which we were called calling periodic tables, in which we would explain. You know, different researchers would come, and people would grab a beer and listen to uh, how they were explaining their research and what is the uh, purpose and how and why research is actually uh, one of the best jobs that you can think of uh, in life and uh, and people were really engaged by this i think interdisciplinarity and uh, a, a taste and a purpose and a vocation for awareness raising are uh, what matters here and i'm pretty sure that there are many academics who are extremely good at uh, communicating uh, the impact and purpose of their research uh, by skipping the technical details that they will then reserve for the academic conferences. Um, this can happen, and uh, I wouldn't shy away from this. I think um, if an academic stays in the ivory tower pretending that uh, um, only the people at their level of sophistication in their domain can understand and should and should understand what they do, I think um, uh, these people are people that are more dinosaurs that belong to the past than researchers that want to play their uh, their role in uh, in society.
0: Well Aura, I want you to reflect on that from your perspective I mean how do does the language with with academics communicate need to change and and perhaps not just the language but the vectors the medium uh, and things like uh, like Facebook
4: Yeah I think this is really important question and I would like to thank uh, Mr Renda or also reflecting back to the uh, EBSC I had honor to serve with Anne Mettler and others uh, in, in the Juncker Commission. And I have to say that's something that I'm really missing now from der Leyen's Commission, because how we communicated, uh, we used a lot of uh, graphs, we used a lot of uh, data to illustrate uh, this kind of evidence-based policy making. Uh, and I think it helped um, not only uh, President Juncker and his team, but also like different services in the commission to use this kind of uh, very digest and well-made, uh, well-made communication in their everyday work and when they communicated out to the citizens. Uh, so that being said, I would like to always think from the perspective of the audience. I just submitted my, my PhD on euro crisis and I'm not expecting that it will be a bestseller uh, in the EU or globally. However, whenever I'm presenting this evidence uh, that what I or what I discovered in my work, I always try to think like why this would be interesting from the audience perspective and how it relates to their everyday lives. Because uh, when we can understand it from our everyday life's perspective, then we can also uh, understand how important it is. But let me also reflect a little bit from the company's perspective, because this also goes to our vision beyond this digital and media literacy that we are all talking about here also. And uh, we, we think this as from the more holistic citizenship approach to equip people to fully and not uh, only critical thinking or media literacy, but also how to participate in digital society, uh, This kinds of conversations. Um, and also we are thinking this from like really from a society perspective, that it needs to be safe, respectful. And, uh, you know, we need to also be super responsible how we spread information and so that people actually understand what they learn and what they read. And uh, we we have been doing a lot of efforts to try to things, think this from the audience perspective, like um, what is digital wellness, what is digital engagement, and uh, how we empower people to actually know what they learn and how they read online news, and so that we don't have these filter bubbles where we only uh, only read news. So we understand the challenges that we face here. And we also make this digital uh, literacy library available in, in now, I, if I remember correctly, 45 languages. Because also when you're thinking these things from the audience perspective, it's super important that in the EU, we can all, all uh, learn and read in all our 20, 23 uh, official languages. We cannot expect that everyone, learn, uh, everyone knows French or German or English, right? So we have these ready-to-use lessons for parents, for educators to help young people between 11 and 18 to think critically and share uh, thoughtfully online. So uh, long story short, I think that we all need to think from the audience perspective.
0: Well, I want to ask you as well. Is there an age gap? Is, do you perceive any any difference between uh, younger people and different generations in how critically they think, uh, but and how they engage with online information in particular? I mean, or I don't know if you've got
4: statistics or anything on that. So I have to say that, of course, you need to be 13 to use our platforms. So uh that's why we are always uh, always thinking uh, beyond beyond that that age age limit. But of course, we also see that younger people are using, for example, Instagram, and a little bit older generations are using more more Facebook. I cannot speak on behalf of TikTok or Twitter, but I assume that on Tik in, in in TikTok they have a little bit uh like a younger audience uh, audience also. But that's why we take really seriously the safety for example on Instagram of younger generations Uh, and also we try to then target these campaigns towards the right uh, age groups.
0: Now I also want gaps exist not just obviously in age but I want to talk about a little bit about gaps in society and you know the the diversity of access to education and information. Um, Despina, do you think, how do we bridge these gaps? Because there are haves and have-nots in in terms of society in general across Europe and across different member states.
2: European policies are aimed to uh, actually cover these gaps by giving access to the opportunities that we have to everyone. This is how we manage our research programs. This is how we manage our education programs that cover learning at all ages that cover a change of uh, uh, students across Europe. And as you know, this is, goes beyond uh, classes, beyond uh, uh, member states, nationality, languages. So I think that we need to um, uh, reach out to these programs even more. Uh, we need to use uh, the opportunity of information society to diffuse the, the opportunities uh, that exist. Uh, so that everyone can have access. I think that um, when we created the policies for this mandate, we started with um, the uh, so-called the upskilling agenda and reskilling agenda. And uh, there you will find a lot of information as to how we intend to fund uh, exactly this kind of access of people to skills, because sometimes this is what it is about. Uh, and uh, equally, for um, a European education area, there is a lot about that, about the importance of reaching out to the parts of Europe that do not have access to the same uh, kind of education opportunities and outputs and, uh, and, and bridging that gap.
0: Eva, let me put the similar sort of same question to you. I mean, how do we ensure diversity and equity in access to both information to, to and, and to the opportunities to learn?
1: Well, I have a feeling that uh, we have too much information and we have access at least uh, uh, for the time being, especially in Europe. And uh, definitely we need to support the plan of uh, acquiring digital skills for more people that they don't either have access or knowledge on how to use uh, the tools that they already have. Um, Despina Pandu and uh, um, has has worked a lot on that they managed uh, last summer to present the European strategy on digital skills and let's not forget that europe doesn't have the full competency for health or education so this was like um, a vision that I believe was very important to to achieve in order to to give these um, options and the opportunities to reduce this um, this gap uh, that we have in the uh, online world. Um, I believe uh, people need to uh, actually uh, reach out and take advantage of all the opportunities that Europe has been providing to them. Sometimes, unfortunately, we, we fail um, to make sure that they will know, they will uh, be familiar with, uh, with what is available to them. Uh, But I think digital skills are really, really important. Um, And uh, because you asked a bit before uh, about the age, I think that empowering communities through social media has been um, actually very important and has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of young people that felt maybe isolated or they had like, um, let's say, uh, they, they were challenged to define their identity I believe that through social media they manage to have like more options and access to uh, not just the European but like a global uh, platform. So um, what we have to do is to make sure that they understand, they have, um, they have the, the opportunity to control their presence online and they take advantage in a positive way the tools that they, they have. And I think this, uh, of course, would help us have a better quality of democracy because it's not very easy to choose uh, out of this infodemic. As I said before, you have what to believe and, and um, what to keep and who to follow. So um, I think this is really necessary. So in the end, uh, as I said, we have to provide options. But uh, I think you're right. At this point, we need to make sure that we will also have uh, availability of digital skills for anyone for free at least in the european uh, union so um and and let me just underline one thing we have been the last years working on making sure that especially girls will have access to coding lessons so they will understand how algorithms work um even colleagues of mine we try to um to produce like legislation or uh, like ideas on how to make sure that by design we're gonna have privacy but they don't understand how algorithms work so then tech people come and they said that this is possible, this is not, and we cannot understand if indeed it is. So if you understand how an algorithm works, it's it's politics, then you know how the architecture of this algorithm should take place in order to avoid biases, discrimination, to make sure that uh, we will protect our democracy, there will be no manipulation, and we will not have Uh, applications that require human attention to an extent that this could be harmful for the the freedom of choices that somebody would like to have, or by too much personalization or tailor-made content. Um, So I believe striking a balance is really important, and this is what we have been working on also to to have the, the necessary studies available for politicians.
0: I couldn't agree more. If you, it's all very well to use the tools, but if you don't have any buy-in or ownership or diversity in manufacturing and engineering those tools, uh, you're going to have some slightly skewed outcomes. But Michael, um, I know you were agreeing there, but I would like to ask, how do you get more diversity and equity in access to education? I know this year COVID-19 has shown us that remote learning is a real possibility. Isn't, Correct. Are there tools yeah. like that that we can take forward?
6: Yeah, uh, and um, early last year we surveyed universities across Europe. We represent 48 countries and some 70-80% of them already at that time saw um, online learning and blended learning as a fundamental tool to increase access and to increase diversity. Uh, But I would also say that um, it's one thing to provide people with the tools, it's another thing to actually attract them into education. So we have to keep re-emphasizing the message that education is the single biggest enabler of social mobility. That message must be out there. And then we have to go out physically. Uh, Successful universities have learned this over the decades. Uh, You've got to go out into the disadvantaged areas. You've got to go into the primary schools. You've got to go into the voluntary organizations and demystify the ivory tower of academia so we have the tools we know what works to attract people we simply have to put more energy and more resources into doing it
0: thank you michael um, now aura we have a question from our uh, audience i'm sure you probably <laughs> anticipated it um, directly for you it's um how do you counter criticism that social media are designed uh to polarize opinions and hence societies um, I'm sure you have had to field this question before.
4: Yes, uh, and I would like to start by saying that we need to remember that we can all tailor-make our social media channels, right? So actually, when you go to Facebook, for example, uh, you, can, you can choose uh, to give you... The, it, it gives you an information why I see this post, for example. You can choose your favorite pages. You can choose uh, friends that you actually want to follow. And we actually changed our algorithms already a couple of years ago, so that you will see your friends and families post first on your newsfeed. It's up to you which news pages you actually follow. It's up to you uh, who you follow and what kind of a content you actually create. And uh, we need to also remember that social media platforms are private companies. And uh, that's why I'm really eager to have this conversation uh, with policymakers, with civil society. What is the, like, uh, how we define public spare? Because sometimes uh, in some of these conversations and debates that I'm taking part of, people actually think social media as this kind of a public entity or public spare but actually these uh, platforms are uh, private uh, private companies and also let me also emphasize that we are not media because uh, we don't edit uh, any of the content uh, on our platforms so people post the content to our platforms we can only ban or then reduce, uh, so take completely out this content, but we don't edit this. And if, if we would ask from BBC or Financial Times, I think that they would definitely say that we are not not media or this is not quality journalism. So whoever says that, I think we can have this, this conversation. So just I saying so. that, tailor make your that own social media and make sure that you know how our algorithms work.
0: I think that's probably, whether or not you're meet I think that's a question for another day and another conversation because we are running out of time and I want to give everyone the chance to have a few final words. Anna, let me go to you. Um, any final thoughts or comments on the discussion you've heard so far?
5: Well, thank you very much. No, I think uh, that uh, everybody said how important it is, first of all, that we engage collaboration between the different stakeholders in the years to come, uh, build up this to, in order to build up the trust of the society through collaboration with research, education institutions, public authority, business and civil society. This is very important. It needs to be done under conditions, under principles. But this is the only way to go ahead. So, uh, I think also it's very important that we promote all the ideas that were heard about uh, uh, citizens' uh, engagement, uh, uh, communication to the citizens, skilling up uh, the researchers, but also the younger scientists uh, and uh, the young people in order to be able to absorb, to understand all the information that's coming out from the, the science and the research activities. It is extremely important uh, that uh, we work in a way that uh, uh, there are no borders, there are no walls between the university and the society, between the research organization and the society, and there are no walls between the public administration and the society. And I think uh, only through st- coordination at European level, member state level, and in particular with the stakeholders and the, the researchers themselves, that they're so much involved, this is the only way that we will be able to go ahead in order to address the big challenges that we have ahead, but also to ensure that the results of the research and innovation, whether are used for policy making, whether they are used for market uptake, whether they are used to addressing pandemics or to, to, to promote the transformation the, the digital and, and the green transformation are accepted of the cities by the citizens. This is only if we work together and with the citizens and for the citizens.
0: Thank you very much, Anna, for those thoughts. I think you've summed up really, really well there. But uh, Despina, I will go to you for your closing thoughts, if you have anything to add to what your colleague has already said, which is a tough job.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, Anna did a very good job. I will come back to my original remarks. I mean, for me, if I wanted one take out of this discussion, it would be exactly the need for universities and, and science institutions and researchers to uh, bring in a more uh, um, interdisciplinary approach to evidence, to uh, break the silos and break this unilateral view of approaching problems, be that the pandemic or the financial crisis uh, or uh, the employ- unemployment crisis. We need disciplines to work together. And I believe research and university institutions are best placed to do that and recommend to governance
0: uh, multidisciplinary uh, solutions to any problem. Thank you very much. Aura, right, your final thoughts. I'm sorry I had, I had to stop you from the debate on media because I think it's going to be a big issue. We will have you back to discuss that again. But any thoughts around this area uh, that we've been talking about regarding how we move forward with a more science-based policymaking and how that can be spread to the wider
4: society? Thank you so much and looking forward to that uh, conversation, our next conversation. I would like to say something about how we are sharing data because we have been talking about this and I just wanted to address that also from Facebook's perspective perspective, because this is something that uh, we are often asked. So, some uh, data sets are actually shared openly and publicly from, from Facebook. For instance, population density maps uh, developed from satellite imagery. Such data are not sensitive and that can be shared publicly. But also, other data sets are only shared with our partners, NGOs and researchers. And I know that research community wants to have more data. But of course, we need to be super cautious from the privacy perspective. But we have this data licensing agreement with researchers. And these data include the granular mobility mobility data sets or specific insights pulled from our platform. And when using insights from, from, let's say, Facebook platform to reach individuals during disasters or during health outbreaks like COVID-19, we shared Aggregate the aggregate data with specific organizations like the Red Cross, uh, UNICEF, UN, and the uh, uh, World Healthcare Organization. So we actually share data, but we are really respectful uh, what comes to privacy.
0: Thank you, Michael. Give us your uh, closing thoughts um, based on, on all the conversation you've heard here from policymakers, from industry, and from uh, think tanks. <laughs>
6: I guess some of the key messages for me were that um, one the past year has reminded us how important education research and universities are to society uh, and that into the future the success of Europe will be very much dependent on successful universities and there's great consensus the council of ministers recently uh, the the commission documentation uh, we shared the analysis that Europe needs strong open, without walls, uh, very engaged universities. But I have to say that it requires uh, partnership uh, because the enabling legal uh, frameworks must be supportive. Uh, there must be an, an investment uh, to ensure that the universities are strong. And we have a job to do to improve leadership uh, and capabilities within the sector. So this is a critical subject for european society and not just for the university sector itself
0: absolutely eva i mean you're heavily involved with the STOA. you are you going to tell us what's coming up in the future um as well as reflecting on what we've heard today
1: well what's coming up in 2021 20, actually a
4: okay. lot of you're good okay we can
0: hear you now thank yeah. you
1: Um, So we have a lot of legislation in 2021, and I think we will try to be proactive to avoid all the negative consequences um, uh, that we actually mentioned. Um, So we have the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the Data Governance Act, and then we have um, the NIST directive or the meta Actually, metadata and, and security of telecoms. We have a lot of files on um, on the new on the digital strategy actually of Europe, and uh, we are expecting the artificial intelligence to be presented by end of March on our working program and the ethical principles. And I think if you connect all these dots, you can have um, the maximum security for our online presence. And as I said, we had the pandemic as a catalyst, so now everybody is trying. Uh, to make sure that by the end of this year we're going to have the first steps and the guidelines on how to proceed, to make it more easy for scientists to share data and, of course, to become more resilient for any other global challenge that we might face in the future. And with STOA, OECD and Andrea Renda and everybody who has been part of this team, we are trying to set global standards for a safer and, um, I would say trustworthy, uh, artificial intelligence and internet. And I believe we will try to to follow the example of, of GDPR to influence and to make sure that we will be able to have like this alliance of democracies, um, not just in EU, but also beyond our borders. Because the new technologies are not just unstoppable, uh, but they are also uh, cannot be... Um, uh, stopped by or they don't have physical barriers. So we definitely have to have a global approach. Um, So I think forums like like this one are really important in order to exchange views and understand how we should uh, proceed in order to not make mistakes. And we have the chance to make it right now. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Andrea, I'm leaving the last word to you too, but it's going to be a short one. If you can wrap up quickly with your final thoughts.
3: Okay, I have uh, three statements. I'll try to be as quick as possible, okay? Uh, super quick. First of all, uh, we have. Uh, I think the debate has been uh, fascinating. Also, it shows what responsibility uh, universities have in society today. Uh, I would just give one um, uh, example here. Many uh, business schools around the world and in Europe still push a vision of capitalism, what we call shareholder capitalism, that is clearly unfit. For the challenges of the uh, of the medium to long term, in particular sustainability. So, the what is taught really shapes our minds, and that's very important. And universities have that responsibility. Second, I want to say something good about, uh, for example, what Anna and her colleagues are doing. Uh, the Horizon 2020 projects on COVID, I think, are the real uh, frontier of interdisciplinary research at the moment on COVID. And uh, I happen to be involved in one of them uh, called Periscope, and there we have. The different disciplines that try to cooperate uh, to really make sense and draw lessons from what has happened. Third, I want to uh, quote one of my favorite academics from the past century, Herbert Simon, who studied information-rich societies like the one that we live in now, and he used to say that a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Now, in my opinion, universities have a key responsibility in helping us cutting through the noise of overabundant information and, diver- and direct our attention towards uh, uh, really evidence-based and science-based um, uh, information and uh, the consequences for uh, for public policy. Uh, thanks a lot, Jennifer.
0: Thank you, Andrea. I really like that quote. I think I will definitely be using it myself in future debates. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I think it was absolutely fascinating. We ranged far and wide around the topic. We did have quite a lot of questions from our hundreds of viewers, but unfortunately we didn't have time to get to all of them. But thank you very much. Do join us again at Your for the next debate, which we will be having in due course. And you can follow using the hashtag EADebates. Have a great day and a great weekend.